Abrahamic covenant is a crucial part of God's plan of redemption. And so it's here that God begins to call a people to himself. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, always a privilege to open God's Word with you. Uh, Before we begin, uh, may we be reminded that this is the very Word of God that we hold in our hands. So let's come to it with an attitude of reverence and humility, knowing that God's Word is absolutely true and it's totally trustworthy. It has been given to us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. Last Sunday, you may remember, we prayed for the Mara people in Kuwait. And in our prayer for them, we gave thanks to the Lord for the amazing blessing that we have of having his word in our heart language. God's word has been translated into English. We can read it and understand it. And so we owe our thanks to men like John Wycliffe and William Tyndale, who labored under persecution to see God's word translated into English. And they owe their thanks to the men who sparked the reformation of the church, Luther, Calvin, and others. And we also owe our thanks to the Puritans who came to the United States, who fled persecution from kings and queens in England because they had a desire to worship the Lord in truth, to be biblically faithful to his word. And in coming to America, they desired to set up a society that would be based around the principles of God's word. Now, like all of us, they were imperfect in that. And after a time, the new colonies slowly moved away from the truth of God's word to a veneer of religion, but spiritually dead. And so God raised up in his providence men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, who were burdened for the state, the spiritual state of the colonies. And they came and they preached the true gospel with power. And the Lord did a great work. And the result was what we know of as the Great Awakening. There was a huge revival in the mid-1700s. And this revival had a great influence on some of the founding fathers of our nation. George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Now, Benjamin Franklin never came to know the Lord. He rejected the Lord, but George Whitfield, in particular, had a great influence on him, and he had a great respect for him. And we could continue to trace this long line of godly men, even to this day, men who stood for the unchanging truth of the scriptures and preached the gospel in spite of persecution, both within and outside of the church. But... This is not a lecture on American church history. My aim in beginning with this is to remind us that we are blessed today 
because there has always been faithful believers in every generation who, those who understood the truth that we are going to learn today from Genesis 12. And the truth is this. Enjoy my grace, extend my glory. That's a phrase that we use here often at Shoreline. As we will see, God promised through Abram that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And so, yes, we can trace the blessings and freedoms that we have here today to men like Edwards, to the Puritans, to Tyndale or Luther. But ultimately, we trace it back to this very passage, to this very promise that came from God himself. And we continue in that blessing today. If you are new to our church, if you're visiting, we teach God's word verse by verse, expositionally through books of the Bible. And so today we are in Genesis 12, as we have read. So if you would like to take notes this morning, we have three simple points straight out of our text. First, we're going to see Yahweh's blessings in the first three verses. Then after that, we're going to see Abram's response. We're going to see Abram's obedience. And finally, Abram's worship. So Yahweh's blessings, Abram's obedience, and Abram's worship. So as we look at this first point this morning, we'll, get, we'll spend a good portion of our time here because there is much to consider. As we just read in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we remember from last week that Terah, Abram, and his family had begun their journey away from Ur, but they had been delayed for some reason in Haran, most likely out of deference to Terah, to his father, because soon after Terah passes away, Abram continues on. In the ESV, if you're reading that this morning, verse 1 says, uh, Now the Lord said to Abraham. However, several of the major English translations translate the Hebrew there in the past tense. Now the Lord had said to Abram, go. And when we compare scripture with scripture, as we did last Sunday in Acts 7, uh, Stephen clearly says that the Lord spoke to Abram while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he had come to Haran. And so here, in the, last, in the first three verses of chapter 12, Moses is giving us the background information about the Lord's command to leave Ur. So if you're reading this this morning, if you're here with the King James or the New King James or the New International Version, you'll see that they translate these beginning words well to reflect what God had already said to Abram. Well, what did he say? And he instructs Abram to head towards an unknown land that will be shown to him in due time. And in order to do this, Abram must leave three things. His country, his kindred, uh, other translations say family, relatives, or people, and his father's house. Now you can imagine the difficulty in this. As we'll see in a moment, Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran in obedience to the Lord. For us, that's a lifetime. That's a lifetime in one country, a lifetime with people and culture that you're familiar with and leaving those closest to you in your own family. 
those whom you've grown up with. It's a lifetime. Matthew Henry makes a good point here uh, in how he compares the call God gave to Abram with the call of the gospel and how that changes our life. He says, our country is dear to us, our kindred dear, and our father's house dearest of all. And yet they must all be hated. That is, we must love them less than Christ, hate them in comparison with him. And whenever any of these come in competition with him, they must be postponed and the preference given to the will in honor of the Lord Jesus. This calls to mind probably a verse you're familiar with. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever do not, does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So did Abram hold up his country, his culture, and his family higher than the voice of God? No, he did not. And it's similar for us as believers. We have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live. It's Christ who lives in us. And that changes everything. What else do we see in Abram? We also see a great trust in the Lord, which will only grow in the future. The Lord promises to lead him to and show him a land, an unknown land, and a land that will not be given to him personally, but to his offspring. And so now, with this promise and the subsequent blessings we see in verses 2 and 3, we have the introduction of something very important. That is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the beginning. Now, the covenant isn't fully revealed until chapter 15, and it's expanded on in chapter 17, and it's also renewed with Isaac and Jacob. But as we've been studying through the book of Genesis, we've been asking the question, who is the snake crusher? Who is it? Who's going to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15? Well, the Abrahamic covenant is a crucial part of God's plan of redemption. And so it's here that God begins to call a people to himself. And it's in the plan of God to choose one man who will become one nation who will extend God's glory to every nation. And I'd love to jump into all the ramifications of this covenant, but we will have more opportunity to go into that detail as we get into chapter 15 and following. For now, I'll just say this. This plan of God culminates in Jesus, who is the true seed, the true offspring of Abraham. But in verses 2 and 3, we see that God gives Abram six blessings. Six blessings we'll walk through here. And uh, sometime you'll notice I'm going to be saying Abraham, and sometime I'm going to be saying Abram. It's hard to keep them apart sometimes. So, uh, of course, we know God changes his name later, but many of the things that we are referring to, he has already been renamed Abraham. So if I mix that up, just forgive me. But we have six blessings here that God gives to Abram. The first blessing is that God says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now, God had commanded him to leave his own people, and yet now he promises to make Abram the patriarch of a whole new people. 
Now remember, this promise is being given to a man whose wife is barren. How could a great nation, numerous and vast as the stars, come from this family? I imagine that this would be a huge question on Abram's mind, but it's a question that will be answered soon. Now, what does the Bible say about who makes nations rise and fall? It's an easy question. Who's in charge of that? God is. That's right. Scripture is very clear on that. Jeremiah 18 says that the Lord decides to build and plant nations. Job 12.23 says he makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. So in this promise, he, we know that he and his sovereignty, he is the one that's going to make a nation out of Abram great. It's his work. It's his doing. What a blessing that he gives to Abram. That's not all. Blessing number two is just a general blessing. The Lord says, I will bless you. And this is similar to how the Lord blessed Adam and Noah. Uh, he says, I will bless you and you're going to go and you're going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This has to do with fruitfulness and dominion. He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you and you are going to be fruitful. Your descendants are going to multiply. But there's a third blessing that is new in Abram. God says, Number three, I will make your name great. Now again, by leaving his country of origin, he had, in a sense, lost his name there. But Yahweh is saying, your former life is gone. I'm going to give you a greater name, way far above anything that you could have had in Ur. And it's similar for us in a small way. When we move from a state to another state or from a city to a city, we, in a sense, lose our name in that state or that city that we had come from because we no longer will have influence there. Now, of course, there's going to be good memories of the people that the Lord has brought into our lives, but that chapter closes and we move on. And if you don't stay in touch with people, your name will continue to diminish there. And sometimes, you know, it's out of, out of sight, out of mind. People don't mean to forget you, but that just happens, doesn't it? So in a small way, we know what it's like to lose our name in one place and see a new name, a new reputation built up in another place. But God is doing this in a much greater way, way far above anything Abram could have had in Ur. And of course, any name that Abram did have in Ur would have been out of his own ambition, out of his own work. But it's very different now. And that takes us back to the Tower of Babel. Because remember, these idolatrous people, they wanted to make a name for themselves in pride and in self-ambition. But it's God who truly exalts those of his choosing. We know that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And as we get farther into Genesis, we'll see that Abram's name, his reputation was exalted by the wealth he had, by how close he was to the Lord, and how he had been given great honor by others, even in when, he, when and where he was to bury his wife. But I would say that even more important than these things is that Abraham's name is known to us, not so much by his wealth or by his influence, but by what? By his great faith, right? 
Because that is how Hebrews commends him. Abraham, of course, is the patriarch, the father of three of the major religions in the world, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. He is revered and respected around the world. And yet, God's word commends him for his great faith. May the same be true of us. May we, when the Lord calls us home, not be known because of any wealth we had, any influence that we had, but may we be known as people of great faith who trust the Lord, who follow him. And if the Lord in his choosing gives us wealth or influence, may all the praise go back to him. So that's number three. The fourth blessing is now outward. He says, you will be a blessing. You're going to be a blessing to others. So the Lord is saying, I'm choosing you and I'm blessing you in these ways so that, the text says, so that you will be a blessing to others. And one of my old pastors used to say at the end of every church gathering, may the Lord bless you and may he make you a blessing. And that's exactly what the Lord's plan for Abram was. He uses Abram at a pivotal point of his plan of redemption. But as we, as believers, as we are in Abraham's family, the Lord desires to use us as well. And this could be a blessing of kindness or of material things, a blessing of a financial gift, maybe. But ultimately, God blesses the world through believers, and this is important, God blesses the world through believers, not so much in our acts of kindness, but as we share the gospel. That's the ultimate blessing that we can give to the world. Now, does the gospel come with other physical acts of mercy and blessing others? Yes, of course it does. Every missionary you talk to around the world will tell you of stories of how they've been able to bless the people, either with medical, with agriculture, with other things. But that's not the main focus. At least it shouldn't be the main focus. The main focus is that we are to be a blessing in how we share the gospel around the world. The fifth blessing, God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So God's saying, I will bless or curse depending on how they respond to you. And James 2.23 tells us that Abraham was called a friend of God. That's incredible. Can you imagine the Lord himself calling you his friend? We talked about this in our young adult study as we've been studying through James. And just a side note, uh, you won't find anybody in Scripture, Abraham, Moses, Paul, John, you will find none of those saints ever saying one time, yes, I am a friend of God. No, they don't get to say that. We do not get to say that. The Lord is the only one who can make that determination. The Lord can call us his friend. And through Christ, he does. What did Jesus say? He says, you are my friends if you obey what I command you. If you come to me as the only savior. So yes, we are now, if we are in Christ, a friend of God. But we don't get, we don't get to make that decision. That only comes from the Lord. We don't bring him down to our level and say, yeah, here's my good buddy, God. No, he is the one that gets to do that. Well, what we're told here is that God promised to be a friend to Abram's friends. 
and he would dishonor and curse those who stood in opposition. Now, the Hebrew word curse means to weaken, to make light of, or to be insignificant. And so God is saying those who dishonor you will be brought to nothing. And that is exactly what happened. If you look into the history of the Israelites, we see how God routed those nations who stood in opposition to him and his purposes. But on the flip side, we also see little blessings of those who came into and were converted and became friends of God. We think of Rahab and Ruth who were pagans, and yet the Lord called them to himself. And very interesting, and you can read this later, we don't have time to go into tonight, but this promise is repeated in Numbers 24, verse 9. Uh, and the situation uh, that is going on in those chapters, Numbers 22 through 24, is the wicked prophet Balaam uh, and Balak, the king of Moab, and the talking donkey. It's a very interesting story. Uh, I encourage you to go and read it, refresh your memory on that, but God repeats that promise through a wicked prophet in Numbers 24. But there's a sixth blessing. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And I can't stress enough, friends, how important this is. This is culminating here to this sixth blessing because we see that Abram is continuing in God's purposes for mankind that was started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. It begins in the very first chapter of Genesis, Genesis 1.28, where God says, uh, it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We know that man was the last and best part of God's creation. And right away he blesses them, but that blessing is followed by a command. And so in this blessing, we see that they are to enjoy God's grace. Enjoy these blessings that I am giving to you. But as he sends them to multiply, to fill the earth, and to take dominion over the earth, we see that they are to extend his glory throughout the world. And that continues through Noah. That promise is repeated to Noah. We see how, just recently, how those at the Tower of Babel rebelled against this mandate and said, no, we're not going to extend his glory throughout the whole earth. No, we're going to gather together and of our own cunning, of our own ambition, we're going to try and build this tower and we're going to stay, stay together. Of course, God had other plans, as we know. But we come back to Abram and we see that it was a 1,500-mile journey of faith that Abram set out on. And he didn't know where he was going, but God said, as you are going, I will bless you in amazing ways, and these blessings that are going to go much farther than you can even imagine. And the wording here is important. God says that all the families, uh, one or two other translations use the word peoples, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And so, what does this word peoples and families mean? Well, we see at the Tower of Babel that God here is describing people groups. He separ separated them out at the Tower of Babel. He confused their languages and divided all of mankind into separate groups. 
And so we must know, okay, what is the definition of a people group? Well, it's a people who have a distinct language and culture that separates them from others. There's a barrier there of language and there's a barrier sometimes of culture. They do things a little bit differently. We're not sure why they do it that way, but they do. Uh, it's also how they see themselves as we and everyone else is them. We and them. For example, we are Americans. They are Brazilian. We speak English. They speak Portuguese. A we and a them. And you can also look at it like this. How far can the gospel go and be understood before it smacks up against the barrier of language and culture. Rick Davis, who is the founder and director of Engage Global, great organization we partner with up in Minneapolis, he uses this illustration. He says in, in Minneapolis, it's, uh, in, in Minnesota, the state is, is the, it's the state of a thousand lakes, is that the? 10,000 lakes, yeah, more than, way more than 1,000, yes. <laughs> So it's the, the, the land of 10,000 lakes. And so he uses this illustration. And it, we can identify well with it because here in Florida, we have lots of ponds and lakes as well. Uh, he says, if I take a big rock and I throw it into one of these ponds, you'll see ripples go out from it. And if it's a big enough rock, maybe the ripples will even get all the way across to the other side of the pond. But will those ripples jump out of that pond and go all the way across and start in another pond? No, they won't. What do you need? You need another rock, right? You need another rock. And so the rock is a picture of the proclamation of the gospel, the rock of Christ, and how missionaries need to be sent to share this rock of Christ with every people group, with every pond or lake, you could say. And so this sixth blessing to Abram is the high point of all of this because it points to the Messiah. Abram, he's saying, this is going to go way beyond what you can imagine. Galatians 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is incredible. All the way back in Genesis, we're seeing that this is a precursor to the gospel. Abraham was preached the gospel beforehand right in this verse, that God would justify the Gentiles, the people groups, the families of the earth by faith as we are faithful to go and proclaim the gospel. Incredible. So that's first, Yahweh's blessings. So with the promise of these incredible blessings, we see Abram's obedience in the next couple of verses. Look at verse four again. So Abraham went, Abram, yeah, here we go. Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they passed, uh, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. 
at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And so here is a map of Abram's journey. We remember we showed this last week, about 1,500 miles in total. Uh, and as they stop in Haran there, there is a good chance that they had been there for some time because scripture records a lot of people and possessions are coming along with them. It would have been a large caravan. Uh, and so there's a couple things to note in these verses. Uh, first, we see the quality of Abram's obedience. Remember, Hebrews 11 tells us that he obeyed not knowing where he was going. And so what does this tell us? What motivated Abram's obedience? Well, Spurgeon has a good word on this. He said, I want to notice that while involved much loss and required a vast amount of faith, yet it was based upon a very great promise, a promise most vast and unexampled. All were to be blessed who blessed him, and he was to become a blessing to the whole universe. Here is a strong inducement to obey. If faith can but believe, the promise is true. So Abraham, in faith, believed God, believed his character, believed his promises. He was 75 years old when he set out. This is an age when most would be winding down, settling in. And yet the call of God and trusting the promise of God propelled him forward. And so we have to ask the question, how about us? Can we obey and trust the Lord knowing that his promises are true? He has given us so many, hasn't he? I will never leave you nor forsake you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we see the quality of Abram's obedience. The second thing to notice in these verses is the people and possessions that he took with them. We see that Sarai, his wife, went with him as well as his nephew Lot. Now we know that both of these uh, play a major role in Abram's life. Uh, Sarai comes up a lot in the chapters to come, and it seems as though they have a good relationship. Uh, when she dies in chapter 23, we see Abram mourning and grieving over her, and there's a whole chapter devoted to the circumstances around her burial. As far as Lot, uh, it seems as though Abram had taken up fatherly responsibilities for him uh, since Lot's father, Haran, had died while they, are, while they were still in Ur. Uh, and Abram, we see, gives Lot the best of the land in the Jordan Valley in chapter 13. Uh, Abram rescues Lot after he gets captured in chapter 14. And he intercedes for Lot before the Lord destroys Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 18. So it's natural uh, for both Sarai and Lot to travel along with Abram. However, that's not all that goes along with him. We're told uh, that all the people that he had acquired in Haran also went with him. And so who are these people? Well, Abram was a wealthy man, and so he would have had uh, many servants. So this likely refers to the servants he had, but there's a couple other verses in the coming chapters that gives us a little insight. Uh, verse 7 of chapter 13 refers to herdsmen that he has. Uh, verse 14 of chapter 14 tells us that he had trained men born in his house, 318 of them. 
Uh, so this is a lot of people. There would have been a large number of people that were traveling along with him. And the one interesting thing that I noticed as I was looking into the Hebrew, uh, it, the original Hebrew word for people in verse 5 literally means souls. And if you have the King James Version, they translated that word as souls. And so this is just a small point, but it tells us that no matter who these people were, servants, hired hands, family, other friends, in the eyes of God, they were precious souls who needed to be cared for by Abram. And he did that. Well, what about their possessions? Well, just a couple quick notes here. The text tells us that they took all the possessions that they had acquired, that they had gathered. And we know from this that God had already blessed Abram with wealth. And in taking everything with him, he would be able to steward it and use it well for God's glory in the years to come. And then also in taking everything, there would be no temptation to return, in a sense. God was sending them to a new land. He had chosen them. He's sending Abram in a new direction. And so Abram, we're sure, didn't keep any kind of summer house in Haran. He was headed off. Goodbye to Haran, taking everything with him. And so it says they head off for Canaan. Now look at verse, the second half of verse 5 again into verse 6. It says, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And so he passed through Canaan to this place called Shechem. Well, why did he do that? Because the Canaanites were there. And you will remember that the Canaanites play a major role as the enemy of the Israelites. And Matthew Henry says that the Canaanites were bad neighbors and worse landlords. And that is very true. And so this brings up another obstacle. Because the first obstacle, so-called, to God's promise was that Sarai was barren. How is there going to be a great nation if my wife cannot have children? And then the second obstacle is that this promised land is occupied by the wicked Canaanites. Abram didn't receive a warm welcome as he entered into this land. In fact, he couldn't even stop quite there. He had to keep going until he got to Shechem. Now, Shechem was still a Canaanite town, but there he found rest and a place to worship at the Oak of Mori. And there are a couple things to mention here. The first is that we continue to see difficulties in Abram's journey. He was going to a land that he did not know, and when he got there, it's inhabited by a hostile people. And Hebrews 11, again, it tells us that by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. He was a stranger and an alien in that land. And yet, as we will see, he worships the Lord and continues to trust in God's promise that this land will be given to his offspring. The second thing to point out is Shechem. Shechem is located about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. And Abram will build an altar to the Lord there. Jacob, in the future, will also build one, and he will purchase the land later in the book of Genesis. And we also know that Joseph's bones were eventually buried there during the time of Joshua. And so this place has significance. 
And the third thing to look, out, uh, look at is the oak of mooring. This is an interesting tree. And though our English translations use the word oak, it is most likely a terebinth tree. Here's a picture of a terebinth tree. Uh, according to the Reformation Study Bible, the height of this tree made it a preferred place of worship. Pagans were known to worship fertility deities underneath these trees, but Abram worships the only true God. And the terebinth tree pops up several times in God's word, uh, two that are notable. In Isaiah, it's referred to as a place of idolatry. And also, this was the type of tree that David's son, Absalom, got his hair caught in, in 2 Samuel 18. And there's other references as well in Scripture. So in Abram's obedience, we see that in spite of his age, in spite of not knowing where he was going, and in spite of not getting a warm welcome when he got there, he obeys, not trusting in the circumstances surrounding his journey, but trusting in the promise from the creator of the universe. And so the final thing we see this morning is our third point, Abram's worship in verse seven. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. And so there's two aspects of worship that we can learn here. Very important. First, worship is a response to God revealing himself. And second, worship is habitual. So we see here that God revealed himself to Abram. He appeared and he spoke to him, something that he did somewhat frequently with the patriarchs. And so he revealed a part of his plan. He says, I'm going to give this land to your offspring. What was Abram's response? Worship. Worship. He built an altar to the Lord. And John MacArthur points out that this is the first true place of worship ever erected in the promised land, was here with Abram. But we see a pattern in scripture in regards to worship. God reveals himself and we respond. And we see it with all the main characters in the Old Testament. It continues on into the New Testament as well. A great example of this is Isaiah. And we've mentioned this before, even during our time of singing. Isaiah is taken up into the throne room of God in Isaiah 6. He sees the Lord with his great majesty on display. He sees the angels saying in adoration, holy, holy, holy. What is Isaiah's response? It's worship. It's worship in the form of confession. He says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And the Lord in his grace sends the angel to him and, and pronounces forgiveness to Isaiah. And then we see Isaiah, or then we see the Lord commissioning Isaiah. He says, who will go for me? And we see Isaiah respond in worship again. Here I am, send me. 
So the pattern of worship in Scripture is call and response. The Lord himself calls us to worship by revealing himself through his word. And Hebrews 1 tells us that in these last days, he has revealed himself through the work of his son, through the cross, through the gospel, through Christ. And so that is why our gathering here each Sunday is modeled in the same way. The Lord calls us to worship. We respond in singing and in adoration. The Lord calls us to come for forgiveness of sins. And we respond in confession. The Lord himself is the one who assures us of our pardon, pronouncing forgiveness. We respond again in singing with joy. And so we model that out of this pattern we see in God's word, starting with Abram. And we include all the elements that are prescribed to us in the New Testament. We respond by singing his word, by reading his word, by proclaiming his word through preaching and displaying his word through baptism and through communion. But the second aspect of worship we see from Abram is that worship is habitual. And verse 8 says that from there he moved to the hill country of Bethel. He pitched his tent, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And so as I was studying this, I was wondering, okay, why did he build another altar to the Lord there uh, uh, in Bethel? I, I, I get it. I understand. In, in Shechem, the Lord had appeared. He had given him a promise. He spoke to him. I definitely understand that. The Lord appears to you. There is going to worship is going to follow. But why did he build another altar at his next stop in Bethel? Well, after looking at a couple passages, it seems like with the early patriarchs, altars were built both after special occasions where the Lord performed some miraculous work or appeared to them, and when they moved from place to place, particularly when a tent was pitched. And so with Abram, every time he moved and pitched his tent, meaning that he settled for a while, he built an altar and he worshiped the Lord in gratitude and in thankfulness. So knowing this, this pattern helps us to understand that worship is uh, not only based in response to how God has revealed himself, but it is also a constant practice. Our praise and thankfulness shouldn't just come at special moments of God's blessings or even the special moment we have right now as we gather each Sunday, but it should be at the very core and fabric of our life and being in the normal movements of everyday life. And verse 8 also includes this phrase here that Abram called upon the name of the Lord. If you remember back a little bit in our previous study in Genesis 4, this phrase is used about six or seven times in the Bible, and it most often refers to public worship, people gathering together. And so there is a good possibility that here in this place, Abram was calling his caravan together, all the people that were with him, and they were gathering to worship the Lord. And this also shows us that Abram was faithful in setting an example of worship to all those under his care, his wife, his nephew, his servants, his children, whoever was there. And then finally, verse 9 tells us that Abram continued his journey, still going toward the Negev. So Negev is just the Hebrew word for south. So Abram is continuing to head south, and we know 
uh, as we will look at next week, that, the, that Abram and Sarai spend some time in Egypt. A very interesting story there uh, before they come back up to the promised land. And so with Abram, we see two aspects of worship. Worship is in response to God's revelation and worship is habitual. As we begin to close out our time this morning, as we think of how we are new, the new creation in Christ, I want to highlight one word in our text today that points to us as believers in the new covenant. And it's important that we consider how all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram. That word is offspring, found in verse 7. And so in one sense, God's promise was fulfilled in Abraham's descendants as they eventually lived in the promised land and defeated the enemies that were there. But this word has much farther implications applying to us today and how we continue on with this mandate to enjoy God's grace and to extend his glory. In Galatians 3.16, we read this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. Who is that? It is Christ. Christ is the seed, the offspring. And so we see that these promises given to Abram are fulfilled in Christ. And Paul continues to go down through that chapter of Galatians 3, showing us how we as believers cannot keep the law. But the work of Christ frees us from that impossible burden. And then he wraps up the chapter by saying this in verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So this is incredible. This means that not just Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, not just the Israelites, but all who are in Christ are Abraham's offspring. This helps us see how the Old and New Testaments are connected as one story. This helps us see how we are all connected as God's people. And think about this. When God tells Abraham in the future that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars, he wasn't just talking about the Israelites. He was talking about us. And so if we are part of Abraham's family because of the work of the offspring, Jesus Christ. That has major implications. That means that we are to continue in the family business. What's that family business? Well, we come back once again to this command that starts in Eden and continues on with us today. Enjoy my grace, extend my glory. We must be concerned that all people groups will be blessed by knowing of the salvation offered through Christ. We must be global Christians, those who know the state of the world that we live in and are involved in seeing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to those who haven't heard. We do that by going, by supporting, by praying, by encouraging others to be involved. In fact, one of the best ways to get you excited about this work of the Lord around the world is to read a missionary biography. It had a huge impact on me as kids and uh, as a child, and it continued to have an impact on me today. And we're having our children start to read these missionary biographies. And so we encourage you to pick up the biography of Adoniram Judson, America's first missionary 
his desire was to follow along in the steps of William Carey and to go to India. But the Lord changed his plans. He couldn't get into India, and so he ended up going to Burma, which is now Myanmar. And he spent more than 30 years there, going through much hardship and toil. Two wives died along the way. Several of his children died. He only came back to the United States one time. And then he returned and he eventually died there in Burma. Around the first 12 years of his ministry, he saw no converts. He had sickness often. He had audience before the kings of Burma. And at one point, he was accused of being a spy, and he was tortured. He was hung upside down by his ankles and was beaten, sick many times. And yet at the end of his ministry, when he passed away, there was thousands of Burmese believers. There was a hundred churches planted, and he had translated the Bible into the Burmese language. In, in 1993... The, uh, the leader of the evangelical denomination of the Burmese people, he said, today, and this is back in 93, today there are over six million Burmese Christian, and every single one of us owes it to one man, the legacy of one man, and that's Adoniram Judson, who was faithful and considered the call of God far above anything that he could have had staying in the U.S. He's a great example for us. This is a page turner. You won't be able to put it down. I encourage you to pick it up. Well, this morning we have seen Yahweh's blessings to Abram and ultimately to us. We've seen the example of Abram's obedience, trusting in the promise of God. And we've also seen the example of Abram's worship. And so as we end this morning, I want to end with a hymn it's called The God of Abraham Praise. It's been paraphrased by Thomas Olivers. Thomas Olivers was an apprentice of John Wesley. Uh, he had his own itinerant preaching ministry, but this is how it goes. The God of Abraham Praise, who reigns enthroned above, ancient of everlasting days and God of love. Jehovah, great I am, by earth and heaven confessed. I bow and bless the sacred name forever blessed. The great I am has sworn, I on this oath depend. We trust it. I shall on eagle's wings upborne to heaven ascend. I shall behold God's face. I shall God's power adore and sing the wonders of God's grace forevermore. The heavenly land I see with peace and plenty blessed, a land of sacred liberty and endless rest. There milk and honey flow and oil and wine abound and the trees of life forever grow with mercy crowned. The God who reigns on high, the great archangels sing and holy, holy, holy cry, almighty king who was and is the same and evermore shall be Jehovah Lord, the great I am. We worship thee. This is the God of Abraham that we praise. It is our God who has graciously extended salvation through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we come back to Galatians 3, 29. If you are Christ, you are his offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so the question is, are you Christ's this morning? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in God alone? 
in Christ alone at that cross to save you? Have you come in humility, recognizing and admitting your sin, that you stand condemned before a holy God and you are headed to eternal destruction unless you repent? We pray that that's true. If you haven't, we beg you today. Don't let another day go by. Tomorrow is not promised to any of us. Come to the Lord today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what a privilege it is to come and to sit under the teaching of your word this morning. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you that we can know the truth and the truth sets us free. Thank you that the gospel is simple enough for a child to understand. Lord, that we are sinners and that we desperately need you. We thank you for being reminded of these promises that were given to Abram so long ago and yet have such far-reaching implications. We've been blessed beyond measure, and Lord, it's my desire that we learn that in a new way today, the blessings that we have. And so, Lord, as you have blessed us, if you, as you have said and called us to enjoy the grace that you've given us, may we be faithful in extending your glory in the station of life that you've put us in, Lord, with the influence that we have, with the finances that we have, with the health that we have, Lord, may we be about your business, the family business, seeing every people group know the blessing that came to Abram. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.